little suspense at the outcome, I hope, for you. In spite of the fact that we know who wins, there is much that we can learn from this account. This isn't just a children's story. It's one of spiritual courage that can inspire every believer, every single believer, to place his or her faith in God to carry us through life's battles. All of us face our own Goliath from time to time. They may not be over nine feet tall, like David's Goliath, but our Goliath may be every bit as much frightening. The hours spent waiting on the surgeon's report, the pain of personal betrayal or interpersonal conflict, ominous economic suffering, 401ks that are wiped out by inflation or by poor financial management, or even the moral decline of a culture that's in decay like ours. All of these are stresses. All of these are concerns. Stress is a very individual thing. The thing that the thing that bothers me may not bother you, and vice versa. But all of us have it. All of us have our Goliath from time to time. You may not be facing a Goliath today, but the chances are you faced one last month, or you may be facing one next month. We all face challenges. There is no promise in the Bible that tells the believer that you will not be challenged in regard to your faith. Or that once you trust Jesus Christ, all is going to be well. You will never suffer again. In fact, quite the opposite. The Apostle Paul, who knew something about suffering, indicated that it's not just for us to trust Christ, but also to suffer for His sake. There's a theology out there today that tries to pretend that if you are walking in fellowship with God, you will never suffer. You'll never be sick. You'll never suffer financial hardship. And that is a lie. It's an unfortunate lie at best. But it's a lie. And most of the time, I would say the people making that lie are doing it to enrich themselves. I hate to say that, but I think most of the people that are propagating that lie are wanting you to send in $100 to their ministry so you can get back a 1000 If that was done in the secular world, people get arrested for things like that. I don't know why we put up with it in the spiritual world. In fact, sometimes it's not put up with. Sometimes authorities... And they do arrest people that make these kind of claims. And sometimes they do it with great success. Certain people in our own state that face criminal charges for things just like that. Taking advantage of people when they're at their lowest. Listen, the truth is, if you're suffering right now, it doesn't mean you lack spirituality. It means you live in the devil's world. But if you're suffering, I want you to know that God is with you. God gives us comfort through His Word in difficult times. Suffering is a reality, but you're not out there by yourself. If we were out there on an island by ourselves, then we'd be in big trouble. But we're not by ourselves. God is with us in a very special way. In our study of the Old Testament, we've seen particularly in Genesis, the phrase, God is with him, or God was with him, is not just a proclamation of omnipresence. Surely that's part of it. But it's much, much more than just omnipresence. It means that God is with you in a very special way. When I was in the eighth grade, I think that made me 13 years old, I went to Broadmoor Junior High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. One of my first days at school, I found myself out playing kickball in the playground area. It's a very, very large playground area. And all of a sudden, I found myself surrounded by a bunch of the boys from school. 
one I remember this I remember the kid very well. He was quite a bit bigger than me. And he came up and just out of the blue just started shoving me. I said, Well this is an interesting way to welcome you to the new school. And later on I found out he did that with everybody. He was the school bully. But as soon as I turned around to shove it back, then somebody hit me on the side of the face. You know, just cold cocked me this way. And then as soon as I turned there, somebody else hit me in the back of the head. And and I was being bounced around like a pinball machine. I wasn't very happy about that, but there wasn't a whole lot I could do. Then all of a sudden it stopped. And a fellow I found out his name later, a fellow by the name of Charles Turner, came up. And he told the biggest of the boys there, he said, Listen, he's all by himself here. How about if you fight both of us? You know, there's like six, seven of y'all. How about if you fight both of us at the same time? Interesting, they must have scared him because they all backed down. They weren't scared of me, <laughs> but they didn't they were definitely scared of him. That afternoon, I was a little bit concerned about my safety because they all said, I'm going to get you later. And so I walked home down the bayou all the way to my house so I would avoid them. I snuck home all the way down. Did that every day for quite some time until I got to know Charles Turner a little bit better. He said, I never noticed you walking home. I said, well, that's because I slip over to the bayou and I walk through the bayou most of the time. I said, it's because of these guys that beat me up. I said, well, yeah, that has something to do with it. And Charles says, well, why don't I walk you out? We'll walk you out together. I said, okay, let's go. And every day he made a point of walking with me out of that schoolyard. And the boys never bothered me again because Charles Turner walked out with me. Charles Turner is a good guy. He was a bit of a scrapper back in those days. But he's not omniscient. I want to tell you, you've got somebody that's incredibly more powerful than Charles Turner to walk you out through the battles of life, to sit with you in that hospital waiting room while you're waiting on the report of your husband or wife as he or she goes through surgery. You've got omnipotent God, not powerful Charles Turner, but omnipotent God that's going with you to the meeting with your boss tomorrow morning when he wants to decide who he's going to lay off. You've got omnipotent God going with you through the valley of loneliness and the loss of a loved one. Omnipotent God goes with you. Why? The same omnipotent God that walked out into that valley, that field, with David, it's the same God is the God that's going to wait with you in the waiting room, whether it's in a hospital or with the, with the Internal Revenue Service. It's the same God that's going after you. I know the story of David, the account of David. It's a historical account of something that happened 3,000 years ago. But it's the same God God is trying to. The same God that, that David referred to when he said the battle is the Lord is the God that protects you. And maybe you've been a Christian for so long that these words go in one ear and out the other. Maybe I'm wasting my time. I don't know. Maybe I am. But for some of you, I'm not. Because you're going through suffering right now. You know exactly what I mean. And you need to know that God is with you. I love the words of the prophet Isaiah. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Yes, I will help thee. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Beautiful, incredible, comforting words from Isaiah chapter 41. But think about it for a minute. Fear thou not. Don't be afraid. Well, why shouldn't I be afraid? God answers back because I'm with you. I'm the one walking you to the bus. I'm the one walking you home from school. You don't have to be afraid. I'm the one sitting in the waiting room with you. I'm the one 
just going to go to the IRS with you. I'm the one that's going to be with you when you talk to your boss. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. Don't be overcome with anxiety. That's what don't be dismayed really means. Don't be overcome with worry and anxiety. Why? Because I'm your God. You know why it's so important to study theology? There are consultants that tell pastors nowadays, don't preach theology in your church unless you want to run everybody off. Meet felt needs. Well, I've got to tell you, one of your felt, one of your needs, whether you feel it or not, and one of my needs is to know theology because we need to know God. Because it doesn't mean anything to us at all to say, why should we not be overcome with anxiety because God is with us if we don't know something about God? So many people know the word God. So many people know the word Jesus, but they don't know Jesus or God. They don't know that Jesus was God. You can't have the comfort that the Bible is designed to give you unless you know theology. Critical. It's important. And one of the theological truths you need to know is that God not only loves you, and He's shown you that at the cross, but He's all-powerful. And He knows all about your problems. That's a pretty good fact. That's good. He loves you. He knows about your problems. And so He cares about you. And He's powerful enough to do something about it. Now, that's the God of the Bible. That's why when Isaiah says, For God, fear thou not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Don't have overwhelming anxiety in your life, because I'm your God. All of us have anxiety. There's nobody in this room who is anxiety-free, unless you're on some sort of special medication. And if you have some, you're supposed to pass out some to the rest of us. That's a joke. But, but if you live in the real world, and you're cognizant, you have anxiety from time to time. The Bible just tells us, don't be overwhelmed with it. Stop worrying about anything. Same, same terminology. Don't have anxiety, but stop worrying about anything but prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God. Beautiful word. The peace of God that passes all understanding. It's a wonderful you can't even you can't even grasp it. It's hard to put into words. Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you ever wondered about those words from Philippians? The text never tells us. Paul never promises us that the problem's going to go away. Did you notice that? No. But we can have freedom from anxiety just knowing that we've turned that problem over to omnipotent God. That omnipotent God is the one that's walking with you. Fear thou not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I'll strengthen you. You can't do it by yourself. Some of you are facing Goliath. In fact, I would say the fact that we're facing Goliath means that it's something we can't handle by ourselves. And we recognize it. God is the one that strengthens us. By ourselves, we're nothing. We're toast. We're dead in the water. But with God, we can get through. I'll help you. See, if you can just want a little bit of help, that's all you need, just a little bit of help. God's going to give you a lot of bit of help. He's there to help you. I'll uphold you in my righteous right hand. You know, like that Arm & Hammer baking soda box that has, has the biceps that's just sticking out to here? That reminds me of something God had me. This is what I'm saying. These verses are verses we should commit to memory. And then when something comes up, we should be able to recite these verses in our own soul, not in just a, a mechanical way, but in a very personal way. Fear thou not. Don't 
afraid because I give you God. Omnipotent God is on your side. I hope that puts things in a holy light when we face our Goliath, when we face our problems. But we do come to a crossroads as folks. We have to choose when we get to that point. What's more real? What's more real, God or the problem that I'm facing? Is the problem that I'm facing so overpowering that what I know to be true about God becomes depressing? We've all been through that point, right? When we face a problem and we go into it initially in pretty good shape, and then the problem becomes so overwhelming and it's like we're crushed, we get our eyes off of God and onto the problem, and we just melt under the weight of it. And then when we melt, we realize, oh, we're in big trouble, so we look at God again and He lifts us up, casting our cares upon Him because He cares for us. Sometimes we go back and forth and back and forth, but as we grow in maturity, we spend less time looking at the problem and more time looking at God. What's more real than me, God, and my problem? Do I really believe that God loves me? Or is that something for everybody else? Or have I done things in my life that are so bad that nobody could love me, even God? Do we really believe that God loves us? Do we really believe that He cares about me? A lot of Christians don't. Frankly, a lot of Christians don't really believe God cares about them. How could He? We, we go outside and we look at the vastness of the universe, just like David in Psalm 8, and say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You did all of this, and you care about me? Out of all the billions of people on the planet, you care about her, 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 all of it, including me? Do you really believe that God cares about you, or are you just playing along? Do you really think that He's omnipotent enough to handle your problem? Or is your problem unique? He can handle her cancer and his MS, but my problem is too much. Is the God of the Bible really omnipotent? Do you know that God's omnipotent? And do you know what that means? It means He's all powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do that's intrinsically possible. That's the God that's walking through the schoolyard with you. Can you see how insulting it is to Him if He's walking you through the schoolyard and the bullies of this life are coming around the corner and you start shying away? Oh, maybe I need to go back through the bio again. How insulting it would be to God because you say, what's the matter with you? I'm with you. You don't need to be afraid of them. I'm walking you through this schoolyard. You don't need to be afraid of that cancer. I'm going to walk you through. Now, it doesn't mean that every cancer gets healed. But it still means that God walks you through the process. Some Christians die of cancer. But even through that process, God is holding your hand and He's walking you through it. All the way through that golden high bridge that spans from time to time. God is the one that is taking care of you. So if the thing that I fear comes to pass, if I sit down in the doctor's office and he says, yes, you do have cancer, you have six months to live. If you go into your boss's office and say, I'm really, really sorry, but your revenues are down, we've got to lay 30 people off, you're one of the last ones we hired, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to lay you off, and there's no patent that doesn't mean that God's not with you. It's a Goliath situation. It means He's going to get you through it. God's not going to put you through anything that you don't have the maturity to handle if you'll just look to Him. 
not hold our hands through the valleys of life if you're just like me. Choose life first. Sometimes we're like dogs that bolt, and as soon as their master takes them out of the door, out of the way. My dogs are not the worst. I'm, I'm telling you, if you want to rob my house, all you got to do at night is choose to sleep, go over and sleep. All you got to do at night is just don't ring the doorbell. You don't ring the doorbell, you can come in and take anything you want. <laughs> ring the doorbell and disturb her from her sleep, and now she's going to come at you first. So the one thing that she does, she bolts. The door's open, she's gone. She runs down the street, ups and downs, is having the best time in the world until recently she ran right into a car. The car didn't run into her, she ran into the car and hurt herself. And we were hoping that that would be the last of her bolting away, but I doubt it. But next time the door's open, I'm sure that that's going to go right out there and bolt again. Doesn't hurt anybody, just has a real good time. Running up and down the river, just roaming, just like the rain. We're like, we're like my dog sometimes, though. As soon as the door's open, we bolt. And God's standing right there. We say, well, where did God go? No, God's saying, I didn't go anywhere. You're the one that bolted, not me. Come back. Place yourself under my protective wing. Place your hand in mine. That's where everything's going to be okay. Not with Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura or Dr. whoever it is in the self-help section. I love self-help books, but I'm going to tell you something. This is really the only self-help book you need. At the end of the day, this is the self-help book. All the others might supplement and give you a nice idea here or there. But this is what you need. If you had nothing else but Isaiah 41.10, make your whole life better if you owned that phrase. Not if you just speak it now. You know what I mean by owning it? You really believe it because it's yours. Your life is so much different. So God hasn't promised us a difficulty-free life, but He promises that He will be with us through the difficulty. Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? I suppose back in my junior high school days, Cheryl Turner and I were going through the school grounds. They could have recruited a couple folks that could have killed Cheryl Turner. God's on your side, and He is. Then what can really line up against you with any success? God is omnipotent. Satan's not omnipotent. He's very powerful. Very smart. But God's omnipotent. Satan is not. Put your hand back in His hand. And walk out to that battlefield with Him. And there's no chance you're going to win. No matter what happens, there's no chance you're going to win. There may be wounds in this life, but in the end, we win. Yeah, we win by ending up in heaven. I know that. I know that. In a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. That's one way we win, and that's the ultimate victory. But we can also win by living an abundant life in the here and now, in spite of that. You know how Paul says, I've been rich and I've been poor? All of us can say that to some degree. We've had times of prosperity. We've had times of adversity. But here's how you test the spiritual life. Is there a steadiness? Are you only happy when you're in times of prosperity? You 
find yourself totally unhappy when you encounter the person? Or have you ever experienced happiness and contentment even in front of the person? Even when the tears are rolling down your, your cheeks, can you, have you still experienced contentment, inner peace? If you have, then you're getting it. If you have, then I assure you, your hand is in God. We can win in this life, too, regardless of the circumstances that we face. We were designed by God to have an abundant life. Not just as a future ideal, but a present reality. We were designed to have an abundant life. But an abundant life doesn't mean a suffering-free life. An abundant life means a life that is content no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves in. The battle between David and Goliath is history. It really happened. Approximately 3,000 years ago. It really happened. We call it a story, but even though I use the terminology story, we want to make sure that we understand it is an historical account. It's history. But it's also symbolic of all the battles that we fight in this life. And to the degree that we, like David, can say the battle is the Lord, we too can have peace even when the bullets of life are flying high. I've been told by military folks that there are no atheists in foxholes. People who have been in firefights tell me that. I've never been in one of those. But some of you have. Elderly good friends that have been in many of them. And you know what? There are bullets that fly around our life all the time. Maybe not bullets that are made of lead, but other kinds of bullets. I don't see how there are any atheists in I would say. It doesn't make any sense. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, where we have the beginning of perhaps the most well-known chapter in all of the Old Testament. It's a chapter that we've studied probably as far back as Sunday school. Now, the Philistines gathered their army for battle, and when they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Soko and Asa in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The group of people that are called Philistines here are central to the narratives of both First and Second Samuel. This group came out of what historians believe the Aegean region of Greece as the Greek sea peoples, and then inhabited this land about 1200 B.C. It's this group of Greek sea peoples that are understood to have conquered all the major cities along the coastline of what is now Israel and up into Lebanon. They are portrayed biblically, both in First and Second Samuel, consistently as the antagonists of Israel. The location of this battle is very interesting. Those that lead trips to Israel can tell you that when you take a trip to Israel, there are some places that are rated, some, some people use A, B, and C. In other words, if it's an A place, it's something that they're absolutely certain this is what happened. A B place, probably C, maybe yes, maybe no. Other people, some people use different designations. But the Valley of Elah is one of those A places. This is one of those few places where they say, this is where this happened, where they can say that. The Valley of Elah is about 12 to 14 miles west-southwest of Bethlehem. And actually probably about the same distance from Jerusalem because of the, of the direct connection. It's near the place that at the time was the border between the area of the Philistines 
and then the area of the Israelites. There weren't distinct borders at that time like we have today. Nations occupied regions. But this was near where the border of these two places were. In verse 3, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. And what we see is the Israelites have come down from Gibeah, Jerusalem, and the areas of the north, and they have stopped on one side of a hill. There's a valley in between, and the Philistines have come up the other side. David's in Bethlehem. David's about a four-hour walk, a four-hour brisk walk, away from the Valley of Elah when this whole narrative begins. The Valley of Elah is actually a very beautiful place. This is a smaller picture of probably very close to the location where this battle between David and Goliath occurred. This is another smaller picture, but you can see a bigger part of the valley. This is most likely the hill that the Israelites were encamped upon. But I have a larger picture of the valley. You can see it's actually quite a wide valley. Most likely, again, where the Israelites were and where the Philistines were, and then David and Goliath met somewhere in between. But I have a picture here that shows something that's a little closer to the spot. I love this spot because unlike some other areas, we can say this is where that happened, at least within 50 or 60 meters, more, more than likely. This is an old dried-up brook. Maybe this was the brook that 3,000 years ago David pulled the stones out of. We don't know. Geography can change. Weather patterns change. But that's a dried-up brook in the valley of Elah. And this last picture I'll show you. These people are walking right toward the spot. And this is not even building an argument. These people are walking right toward the spot where biblical archaeologists and historians feel like that David most likely fought Goliath. David most likely came off this hill, came down, not necessarily down that path, but came down and met Goliath somewhere right toward where these people were walking at that point. So it kind of gives you an idea. I don't know about you, but I like to get visual sometimes of what things look like. And that's very, very close to the area. It may not have been right there, but it was somewhere in this in this general area that David had this monumental historical battle with Goliath. Now, in verses 4 through 7, we see something of the enemy. This is David's Goliath, literally. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's nine and a half feet. I want to show you something. Many of you remember a basketball player by the name of Wilt Chamberlain. I'm sorry, in the back of I can't see this as well. But many of you remember Wilt Chamberlain. He was the best basketball player of his era, at least one of the top five basketball players of his era, arguably the best center of his era, maybe one of the best of all time, Team Olajuwon, some people think him, Bill Russell. But this man right here, Wilt Chamberlain, was seven feet two inches tall. The other person in the picture you might recognize is Muhammad Ali, the champion boxer. This picture was taken in the 60s at a time when Muhammad Ali was the boxing champion and Wilt Chamberlain was the basketball champion. And there was speculation as to whether what would happen in a fight between Wilt Chamberlain and Muhammad Ali, because Wilt Chamberlain was so much bigger. My dad, being a boxer, said there's no question what would have happened in that fight. Muhammad Ali would have destroyed Wilt Chamberlain, which is, which I'm sure is true because he knew how to box. He could have gotten up underneath him and, and it would have all been over. But I want to show you something of a perspective. I saw Muhammad Ali one time. I made a point of positioning myself when he was walking by in this big conference hall. Actually, he was shuffling by because he's got Parkinson's, most likely due to the 
the boxing career that he had. He'd have an entourage around him, but I remember watching him growing up, and so I just kind of wanted to see just how big is this fellow. He shuffled by me, sadly, and he's a, well, how about we? He's about my size, both now, both in, in girth and in height. When he was fighting, he was a bit slimmer than I was. I want you to see this. Muhammad Ali is about my size. Will Chamberlain is, was seven feet two inches tall. I want to show you the perspective. If you magnify this and put how tall David was, Muhammad Ali is about six two inches. Maybe, maybe he, he was as much as six three at one time. David was probably no more than five eight, five nine, maybe five ten at the most. Remember, Saul's about six feet and he's a giant. David would have come probably right up about to Muhammad Ali's chin. On the other hand, Goliath would have been pretty much a full two feet taller than Will Chamberlain. Do you see the difference? This is a nasty human being. Nine feet, nine inches tall, had to weigh well over 300 pounds. I mean, well over 300 pounds. And probably wouldn't have answered that on it. He was an experienced warrior. This is what David's going up against. He had a bronze helmet on his head and was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 125 pounds. Put this in perspective now. David probably doesn't weigh himself more than maybe 150, 160 pounds. The armor that Goliath is wearing weighs almost as much as the man that he's going to fight. This is a pretty big fellow. This is somebody that might scare you if you thought you were going out there by yourself. Some people are speculating that the Jews exaggerated Goliath's height because they wanted to make their hero, David, look better. But there's no, there's nothing in scholarship to back that up at all. In fact, quite the opposite. The Egyptian letter on Papyrus Anastasi one, which is from the 13th century BC, describes fierce warriors in Canaan who were seven to nine feet tall. Literature from that time. Additionally, two female skeletons have been found not all that far from the Valley of Elah, within 50 to 60 miles. Two female skeletons, both of which were over seven feet tall from that same era, about 1200 B.C., so maybe 200 years before. The, the point is, Goliath is really big. Goliath is very funny. He's got a helmet on that's very much like a typical Philistine helmet, probably with some sort of feathered headdress. The spear that he's using is very, very wide. The tip of the spear weighs approximately 15 pounds. You ever watch the Olympics and see those big fellows that they turn and they, they do a shot put? That shot put, that piece of metal, that metal ball that it takes massive arms to propel through the air weighs like 15 pounds. An Olympic shot put for, for men weighs 15 pounds. This just gives you the, an idea of who David's up against. Verse 6, he also had bronze graves on his legs, a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of his spear weighed 600 shekels, 15 pounds of iron. His shield carrier also walked before them. 
this is what David's going to be up against. And then in verses 8 through 12, we see what I call the taunt. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and your you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Then in verse 11, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Day by day, the text will tell us later, 40 days in a row, Goliath comes out of these hills, probably into the valley, and shouts up to the men of Israel that are in these hills, issuing them a challenge. If one of you will come down and fight me, I don't need the whole army. Just one of you come fight me one-on-one. If I, if I win, then you're our servants. You win, then we go home and we're your servants. This kind of talk, this kind of challenge wasn't unknown in the ancient world. In fact, in ancient Greek history, we see it all the time. And an episode of Greek history that happens actually 700 years after this, we see it still happening. Alexander the Great is in one of the great battles against the Persians. There's this great story that the, the Greek historians portray where Alexander, riding on his horse, sees the leader of the Persian army in the distance. The leader of the Persian army, the Persian general, sees Alexander at the same time. It's a magnificent story, almost like the, mo- the movie The Two Armies Separate. And Alexander charges the Persian general and takes this flight back. Actually, this Persian general is going to come back and kill Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great, chief lieutenant, comes and chops off the arm of the Persian general at that particular time. It's like a huge order, but but that ended the battle. When the Persians saw that their general had been defeated, they turned their back. Even 700 years after this battle, there was there was still this mano a mano thing going on in ancient warfare. I think because George Patton. George Patton. He's so much about ancient warfare. But that's why he lamented one time. He would like it a whole lot better if they just use Hitler a pistol and him a pistol. Let them go out into the field. True story. Let them go out into the field. And he would settle them once and all. He said, you don't have to worry about me losing. So this is not one of those stories that we have to say is myth. The Jews didn't make up Goliath's size to make their hero look better. All this really happened just the way that the Bible says it did. One might ask themselves, and we'll do that as we come to our closing moments tonight, well, who should have really gone out and fought Goliath? Who should have had the most faith to go out and fight Goliath? I think it should have been one of two people, either Saul or his son John. One of those two should have done. Saul was the king of Israel. He was also supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel. But you remember from our study in the past few weeks, the Holy Spirit had left Saul. Come upon David and left Saul. It's no surprise to us as the leader of this text when we see David's the one that stands up to Goliath and Saul is strikingly silent. About Jonathan, we don't know. So it seems to me this is a comparison and contrast between primarily Saul, whom the Holy Spirit has left, and David, who has the Holy Spirit. And we see this incredible difference between the reactions of these two men. Saul doesn't want any part of Goliath. Saul's probably quite a bit older than Goliath. 
put both David and Saul are no match for Goliath, truth is. No matter how old or young they're going, it's how much faith they have in the God that was with them. The battle's going to stand off for 40 days. 40 days, Goliath keeps coming out, coming out, and challenging. And 40 days is the number of testing in the Bible. We see the Israelites, the number 40, I mean, not 40 days. The number 40 is the number of testing. We see the Israelites wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is tested for 40 days. And now Goliath is testing the Israelites for this 40 day period. This is a test for Israel, just like they're wandering in the wilderness. Would the nation trust in their own strength or would they trust in God? Why does leadership keep silencing? I believe that the nation of Israel is at a serious crossroads here and they don't even know. We do because we've been We've been privy to information they don't have. But we know that they're at the crossroads. And the crossroads is the end of Saul's reign and the beginning of this new reign of David. Not so much because of the brilliance of David. Not because of his ability to the slingshot. We've already heard that he's killed a lion and a bear. We'll talk about that more next week. But because of the God that was with him. I've got to tell you, back in that junior, the junior high school days, if it had just been one of them, and I wouldn't mind scrapping at all. And I think it would have been a 50-50 proposition. But the numbers that they brought made it not a fair fight. It's the same, same way with David. If Goliath had been a little smaller, maybe a little less experienced, David might have been tempted to go out there and fight him without intense dependence upon him. I think it's the best thing that ever happened to David was this massive man that came out somewhere. Because he knew he couldn't get through that battle without him. David's going to be rewarded when this all happens. But that's not why David does it. He doesn't do it for the reward. You can ask about it, but that's not why he does it. He does it to maintain the integrity of the God that he's with. The table has been set. God has providentially now moved all the pieces into place. And in our next lesson, we'll observe the greatest underdog in human history come through with a rousing victory, not on his own, but because he knew the battle was the Lord. If God is for us, who can possibly be?